Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Geomuggle land by me, Liam Miller, he, him, his, a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. I'm very excited today. My guest is Joseph Marshall. Joseph, welcome along. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So for those who don't know, uh, I'll give a brief bio here. Joseph teaches introductory religious studies courses, a range of biblical studies courses, as well as more advanced seminars on bodies and religions and theories for religious studies at Ball State University, where he is a professor of religious studies. Uh, He's particularly passionate about introducing students to the ancient context of biblical texts and then helping them reflect on their relevance for more recent cultures, including their own. This passion extends to Joseph's research, focused particularly on the dynamics of gender, sexuality, ethnicity, and empire, and the audiences of Paul's letter. And today we are discussing his new book, uh, or recent book, uh, Appalling Bodies, Queer Figures Before and After Paul's, Paul's Letters, which is out now with Oxford University Press. So that's a bit about you. I'm sure there's lots more, but uh, but I, I guess I'm, you know, thinking about the book and 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 how this kind of came about. Um, the prologue begins with what might be for some a startling and for others a, a scrumptious <laughs> claim uh, that Paul is probably the least interesting thing about Paul's letters. So. I guess um, help us just help us wade into this book that's not really about Paul. That's in some ways about decentering Paul. Uh, what's kind of the, the what kind of got you interested in this kind of a conversation in, in putting this time into exploring these uh, yeah queer figures before and after Paul? Right. Yeah. Thank you. Um, what a lovely introduction and a pleasure. Uh, yeah. I mean, like in some ways, the the book opens with a joke that's not a joke. It's a, <laughs> it's a description of my own kind of disciplinary habits, which uh, other times I've, I've been narrated, people introduce me sometimes as a Paul scholar and I like, Oof. like I don't spend my life focusing on trying to figure out what Paul of Tarsus was arguing or would want for us if you think that Paul's arguments cross time, right? That I'm kind of an accidental Pauline scholar, meaning that um, I come to the process of studying biblical literature uh, with my own very clearly stated desires and hopes and aims for making the world a better place in a variety of ways. Um, And that I was trained primarily in terms of feminist biblical interpretation and uh, really was more a matter of, as I was doing that work, when I read Paul's letters, there's all these other people, right? Uh, That either are being explicitly named or are being evoked, or there are figures that are being deployed as a way to kind of, uh, direct claims towards other folks that we're kind of listening in uh, on other people's conversations when we read Paul's letters. And for me, Paul's letters evoke that in a way that, say, gospel narratives don't, right? Um, that, like, the, the, kind of the narrative world of, of gospels kind of bring, like, kind of immerse us uh, in kind of what they're doing in a way that the, the letters kind of point to and gesture to and give us a sense of the spectral presence of all these other people besides Paul. But that's not, uh, I, I realized much too belatedly as it became more and more interested in Paul's letters, that that's not the primary habit uh, or orientation or discipline for people who do spend their life studying Paul's letters. Most people who do very strongly identify with Paul, uh, often because they are a particular type of Protestant, 
uh, and they have come to read Paul's letters as endorsing very specific views about how to be a person uh, on the planet, where that's that's mostly incidental um, to me. Uh, it's also just the fact that Paul's letters have, have been used in a wide variety of ways to target people. So whether we're interested in trying to figure out what was going on in the first century or what is the rhetorical aim of first Corinthians or Romans or Galatians or some other letter, um, the fact of the matter is in the history of these, these, these epistles and how they've been used is they've been used to target people. Uh, people have said that these texts tell us what to think or what to do to uh, people who are, who are othered in a variety of ways. And that includes on the basis of gender and sexuality, but not only. Um, we have to think about that in some kind of intersecting and mutually overlapping ways. So yeah, that's in some ways to kind of prepare people, right? Uh, but also to kind of like let people know in advance, like if you're looking for a book that tells you what's Paul's stance about say our contemporary concept of homosexuality, there's great works about that. Really the landmark book that remains that way. It's 25 years old now, uh, Bernard Bruton's book, Love Between Women. Amazing. You have to read this book if you haven't read it before. Highly recommend it. Fabulous. I think it's coming out in a German translation. A new, um, and it's going to be a special session in honor of the 25th anniversary of this book. Uh, at whatever version of AARSPL we're going to be having uh, <laughs> later this year. So if you, if you want that kind of case, right, like there's work on that. But I remain just, haunt is not the only word, right? Uh, but I use the, this kind of the image of touch from Carolyn Dinshaw, right? That again, I, when I read the letters, they just seem like overstuffed with the potentiality of all these other people. And that's why we talk about queer figures before and after Paul's letters. It's not a, and the idea that they had lives before the letters would have been written, dictated, sent, received, recited out loud, uh, as well as after. Uh, and it's not necessarily a matter of trying to figure out, should we be queering Paul? Uh, and indeed, there's lots of ways of doing queer readings of Paul's letters, just because uh, I'm taking up this idea that he's using uh, really kind of complicated rhetorical figures that ancient people would have had difficult, conflicted, anxious, um, quite possibly a kind of repulsion and attraction mm -hmm. to them. Uh, I focus on those figures, but certainly also if, like, if your bag is trying to say, oh, there's something kind of odd about Paul and the fact that he kind of is pro-sexual austerity, doesn't particularly have like say, what some folks call family values now, whenever someone says family values and they say they get it from Christian scriptures, I wonder which part of the Christian scriptures they're reading because it doesn't yeah. seem to match up at all uh, with those traditions. And, and the figure of Paul is a very bad fit uh, in mm. uh, late 20th, early 21st century ideas of family values. Um, so the, the book opens that way to kind of warn people in that way, like, okay, we'll eventually get to the so-called bashing passages, chapter five, deals with that. And my argument, in fact, is you need to grapple with each of these figures and how they're deployed in the past and how they have afterlives in how people are targeted in terms of gender and sexual variation now. So you have to understand kind of androgynous females, castrated males, enslaved people, and even the concept of barbarian, the idea of the four and other. You have to understand those figures and how they build and fold into each other before you can understand what's going on in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6. 
Uh, and it's not at all clear that it's about sexual orientation. In fact, it's probably about something else entirely. Um, so we get there eventually. Uh, but if you're if we're looking for an instruction manual here about how to do something or how to be some way, oh goodness, no, we don't do that. Uh, or if you're looking for finally, I'll know the stance about sexual orientation. Um, there's literature for that, but I I think what this book tries to do um, is to give us some sense of the vivacity, kind of what what would have animated these communities, and also what animates our approach to them. The fact that we are we are reaching for these figures, and we always reach back to these documents, right? And these these documents live on and drag forward in space and time. Um, so it was that kind of. I didn't really give like a narrative of like how did I start working on this project, <laughs> which we we could do still. Um, but it's that type of attention, that kind of yeah. that kind of directed where I where I go in this work. Um, uh, but I, but if Paul is your bag, I think there's quite a lot in here too. Like if Paul is your saint, if you do live in a, a town called St. Paul or go to a church called St. <laughs> Paul, if you were born in a hospital named after St. Paul, this book would still be for you. Mm. Um, even if it's not ultimately trying to figure out how to kind of, how would these letters top us mm. uh, or kind of tell us um, how to be doing our lives. Mm. Thank you for that. That's, that's great. And um, I feel like there's a lot of people very excited um, so as, you, as you're touching on there in that response, you know, the book reaches past Paul toward other uh, far more fascinating figures, as you write, um, you know, androgynies, eunuchs, slaves and barbarians. You write each depicted as perversely gendered and strangely embodied figures in their own distinctive, though interrelated ways before and after the letters. And, you know, I really appreciated, you know, reading through the book, the, the angles you've taken in trying to, you know, look around and look past Paul uh, at the other bodies proceeding and lingering with him in the communities he is writing to and with. Um, and, and yeah, as, as I say, it's, it's, it's a good way of getting out beyond that what Paul thought or, or how he might get, get some way from the text to an inclusive way of reading it. Uh, and I guess what was it like um, as you kind of started to think about these figures, not only on their own, but in this way that they are connected um, to each other in, 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 in some way and then to, to more contemporary communities. You know, we can come to that more specifically later. But, yeah, as you started to actually kind of really dive into these figures with the things that surprised you, uh, did it just open up and <laughs> it was like, oh, wow, I didn't even think it was going to get this exciting. <laughs> uh, it took longer. This book took longer than I anticipated. Um, in some ways, uh, the kernels of this project were back in my doctoral program. Um, before I kind of settled on a very narrow topic, which you should do for a dissertation. Don't be overly ambitious, friends out there. If you're, D is for done. Just write your <laughs> dissertation, show that you can do the work. Um, but actually, like, each time I began thinking about the figures that I'm seeing, that the Paul's letters deploy a rhetorical figure. So in the case of 1 Corinthians, I think he's deploying this image of an androgynous female. When he's talking about um, a shortly cut or shaved head on a woman, right? Um, or when I, when suddenly there, he just makes this joke about, I almost like, I kind of hope the knife slits and you cut off your penis, right? If you're not gonna listen to me, I hope you lose your penis. Um, which seems like on the one hand, very jarring, but then when you look back and you see kind of the rest of the ways that things have been arguing in the letter to Galatians, you begin thinking about how that figure might've been there all along. 
And then you start thinking about, okay, how would these have been received, these figures, right? Uh, or if he's punning on the, the bodily vulnerability of enslaved people in Flamon, right? Um, what would that have sounded like, not only to an enslaved person, but to freed or free people? What did, how, did, how did ancient folks think about these things? So that's when you end up doing these deep dives into, right, what does the term androgyny even mean to an ancient audience? And it meant a lot of different things. Right? Each of these figures are themselves capacious and conflicted, right? Um, so that they show the signs of, so there's, there are prevailing perspectives of how, like you have elite free Roman imperial males at the top of pyramidal governmental, political, social, cultural relations, right? You might call Kyriarch, those of you, a big pyramid. It's not like the world's not like this. Like it's very little room at the top here. Mm. Right. And so our, our sources of the ancient world tell us the point of view from the people at the top really, really well. Mm. Right. And those people uh, are not seen as androgynous or not seen as a bodily vulnerable in the way that a castrated person was or enslaved person was. And in fact, many castrated people were enslaved people uh, or barbaric foreigner others. Right? So our sources show us kind of ancient discourses, ancient rhetorics about these people. Uh, and each of the chapters after kind of the setup, so two, three, four, and five, kind of take each of these figures in kind of pace. Uh, and actually at various points, I was like, oh my goodness, like each of these chapters could be their own book. Uh, and I did have a crisis about it a year before the, I decided to kind of finish the book as is. I was like, are these two separate books or not? Uh, and it was what I already alluded to that I think it's harder to understand chapter five without doing the cumulative work of two, three, and four. Um, so that's ultimately why this, this stayed in, in kind of two covers instead of like four covers and two separate books. Um, so uh, each of these figures are themselves complicated. They're, they're, they're threatening and appealing. They're debased but they show these signs that this isn't the only perspective on it. And so then we go back to Paul's letters, we see how Paul's playing with and using, and sometimes also deploying multiple senses of these figures rhetorically in order to kind of target arguments at, at potential audiences. But then we're stuck, right? And there are, there are moments in each of these chapters, I hope, where we see like, okay, if, all we've done is we've traced the prevailing curiocal perspective or point of view from the ancient world. And I've mostly demonstrated that Paul's letters are consonant with these, are resonant with these. Like Paul is not at the top of a curiarchy, right? He's, he's lower down, but he's trying to make a mini pyramid inside the pyramid. He's, he's convinced that he belongs at the top uh, himself. Uh, so there's ways in which he replicates it, though he's himself uh, a colonized Jewish male. He would not have been from a dominant ethno-racial group. Uh, I don't think he was a citizen. The Acts of the Apostles depicts him that way. None of his letters go out of his way to construct his authority that way. And the letters are not embarrassed about constructing authority for Paul. So I think he probably would have brought it up. <laughs> but this is, a, this is mostly guesswork uh, from there. But if we stick with only the prevailing perspective from a curiarchal point of view in the first century and how Paul replicates it, we're missing those other people. Mm. And so that's where uh, bringing into conversation, so each of these figures in antiquity are figures of gender and sexual variation uh, and are subject to vilification, stigmatization, and marginalization. That sounds like what we call queer figures now mm. too. 
that sounds like all sorts of folks who are or are subject or are targeted as or are figured as um, gendered or sexually variable people. So what does scholarship on and what does activist work, and there's not necessarily a divide between those two things, what do they tell us, in fact, um, about gender variant females? Right? What do they tell us about um, altering our bodies? Uh, what do they tell us about thinking about scripts, about domination, coercion, consent? So in, in an attempt to kind of hear or to see or to reach or to touch back to these other figures, I, each of these chapters do these, these juxtapositions, right? Mm. Where we're thinking about, okay, if we're trying to figure out the, the prophesying women in Corinth and Paul's using an argument about gender and embodiment, and punning on or playing with androgyny, right? Are there other ways of sorting gender that's dealing with these exact same coordinates, mm. but does it multiply the vilification and stigmatization, right? Mm. Um, yeah. And does that help us to see the Corinthian women prophets more, or at least in a different way, and the way in which that they are not identical to say my butch friends, or to trans guys now. I'm not saying that like they were, right? Uh, and so I refuse that politics of identification too. Like we don't, we shouldn't be identifying with Paul and we don't need to be identifying with other first century people, but are there ways in which folks are sorted and pushed around and pushed out of gender and sexual categories now? And were there ways in which people were pushed around, targeted by, rhetorically figured as problematic in terms of gender and sexual categories of that? And are there ways in which those contingent kind of touches, right, that touch across time from Carolyn Dinshaw's really great book, Getting Medieval, right? Mm. I brought props, right? I don't know. <laughs> some, some people will be following this visually, I guess. Some people might be yes. following this only audio. I'm holding up a book uh, called Getting Medieval from Carolyn Dinshaw. She talks about this touch across time. And, that, and that's what I'm trying to elicit and evoke. And it gets us, we get more than just Paul's point of view. And we get more than just a prevailing curiarchal point of view from antiquity. Mm. Um, because of nothing else, if we're just stuck with that prevailing curiarchal point of view, we're missing most of the people, most of humans are, are underneath, are, are low in the pyramid. Um, and that seems, if nothing else, depressing. Yes. <laughs> uh, to not try to reach for those. Um, it's, not, it's, it's certainly also not, it's not the whole picture. Right when we take the point of view of curiarchal sources as as their part, um, their partial point of view, their prevailing perspective politically, as the 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 sum, as the totality, as the whole of what ancient experience would be, or what experience in our time or place would be, um, we're doing a massive disservice, and we're saying something that's in fact ahistorical. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not. Um, so different types of partialities in terms of trying to recover or to reach back or do a kind of conflicted sort of remembrance. Thank you for that. So, yes, yeah, so that's, you know, in the book, you kind of talk about this, you know, that, that intentional anachronistic juxtaposition of taking mm. these figures. So not exactly saying, hey, that we actually now know what these figures are because we've got a new language here, but it's saying, you know, the way they help overcome some of those limitations of, of looking back, of, of who's ignored in those sources, and maybe then also thinking of a different way of thinking about the communities and their relationship to this text. Um, one thing I thought interesting with 
with that is kind of because I can imagine some people being like, you can't, you know, talk about these figures that are totally anachronistic. You know, that's usually, you know, used um, used as a, you know, um, a charge against a work, right, to be anachronistic. is, is not something that usually is, is sought after. Uh, but I thought it was interesting that you are talking about one of the reasons you do this is, well, the Bible itself has already crossed space and time, and so thus... <laughs> All bets are off. Um, do you want to talk to us a little? No, not quite. I know. Um, do you want to talk to a bit about how you know this? This yeah, this anachronistic juxtaposition and it, how that relates to this idea that well, the Bible itself, you know, and its and its production and um, dissemination allows for this. Sure. So also, what's happening in queer studies, aside from kind of just kind of talking about and theorizing. Um, gender and sexual variation is all this work thinking about temporality, thinking about history that's happening in queer studies. Yeah. So there's all this kind of work on queer temporality. Uh, and in fact, I, I kind of worked on a conference and a project with a couple other colleagues, uh, kind of there's a volume called Sexual Disorientations on thinking about temporality that, that, that to do queer work isn't just about finding and people who are analogous to LGBTIQ folks now, right? that it's to engage in interrogating forms of naturalization and normalization, right? It's to, to interpret queerly, right? And so you could do that in all sorts of ways. And it's been this fascinating work on kind of temporality and historiography. And Dinshaw is a part of that and Elizabeth Freeman and a few other interlocutors uh, in the book. And this, this is a thing that happens in general for the ancient world, but especially also in the biblical world, as I've already gestured, right? So we often get called upon it's one of the few times, in fact, that people call on biblical scholars uh, is to talk about sexuality, right? Uh, we don't actually call on biblical scholars to tell us what do we think about fiscal policy uh, very much, right? At least not in the United States. Maybe it's very different in Australia, right? Uh, we seem convinced that the Bible has something to tell us about what we're supposed to be doing with our bodies mm. when we think about the stuff that we call sex, mm -hmm. right? Whatever that might mean, which itself needs to be historically situated, what we call sex and sexuality is a very specific product of our time and place, right? Mm -hmm. um, so people wanna know, so tell me what the Bible says about, right? And it's often about the sex. So already there's a way in which uh, the, the biblical is not entirely in the past. It's not, it's not stuck, it's not only from its space and time. Um, and so, and this also happens too from the so-called classics. So Greco-Roman civilization or Greek and Roman civilization has been called upon, especially by white identified uh, European Eurocentric cultures. They say that somehow they are the new Greeks or they are like the Romans. We imagine that they are our foundations of so-called Western civilization. So there's often a call to kind of narrate, right? The classical past or the biblical past by scholars. And what happens in the history of sexuality is there, there's tended to be two different types of responses, right? Uh, in terms of alterity versus identity, right? So you might think of somebody like John Boswell, right? Who said like, look, you might be surprised by the greater variation that he, he did use terms like gay and homosexual, right? that there was actually quite a bit of presence and endorsement of same-sex erotic practices and same-sex partnerships uh, in the ancient world. And you'll see that happen in um, religious communities now, that like religious communities, especially Christian identified ones, will wanna look for ancient analogies, right? And say, Jesus is cool with me because Jesus was cool with, right? 
a sexualized outsider. Like Jesus hung out with prostitutes. Uh, Jesus healed the centurion slave, right? Um, so we did this kind of, so they must have sorted things the way that we do, right? That they're similar to us. Whereas a lot of other scholars have said, no, boom, radical break. That ancient people thought about these things differently. They used different words. Some of our norms, like say about mutuality, around consent, were not especially important or the consent was located somewhere besides in individual bodies as if I decide what to do with my body. And if you have your own body, you get to decide with your own, right? There's some questions in fact about, do we actually live into these norms that we have now, right? Uh, and I think there's a real paucity of options when we limit it to like, are these people like us or not, right? I, I, I understand the impulse to want to say, look, <laughs> right? Paul didn't know the word homosexual, mm -hmm. right? He also didn't know the word heterosexual, by the way, right? Um, and so there's this kind of interrupting that, that can happen, right? That like, yeah. well, technically the Sodom story is not condemning homosexuals. It's a story about something else entirely, right? Uh, but I, I worry also that's doing some distancing because the four classic fasting passages, the Sodom story, Leviticus, and Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, are eliciting sexual dynamics as part of an argument. It is usual, using sexual invective. It's using sexualized othering. Right? So we can't say that it doesn't resonate at all with our time and place. Mm -hmm. But we also can't say it's exactly like our time and place. There is a way to split the difference between like hard difference, mm -hmm. right? The alterity camp. Um, and like a similarity that we can kind of recuperate and identify with, right? Uh, the sameness camp. And that's where, again, the, the touch across time to imagine an analogy, to try to situate these as best as possible in the terms that we understand them. And to think about their, the, the people who would have departed from those norms and departing now for us. So um, on the one hand, there might be something anachronistic then about saying, okay, if we pay attention to intersex and activists uh, uh, amongst people with intersex conditions, we can understand more about processes about genital cutting. Mm. Um, we can think about that differently. If we pay attention to um, what's going on in transgender studies, we can understand the concept of androgyny differently. Mm. Um, and we can think about it along the lines of female masculinity. Um, and so in some ways I'm, I'm being honest that, oh yeah, these are, these are 20th and 21st century points of view. If I want to be a real pain in the butt though, we're, how can we not, but do when we're reading, when we're doing history, we are always looking from a time that's not right. Um, and we are trying to kind of transfer knowledge about say Koine Greek into English that would be understood in the United States of America or Australia, and those might be slightly different at different times in different parts of those countries. We're already doing a weird kind of cross-temporal thing there anyways. Um, and there are scholars that would argue that they're doing something neutral and objective and that that's what counts as real history. But the act of looking from the position that we have itself shapes the questions that we ask, the, the terms that we seek, um, and um, the, the vocabularies we have shape that. So even just something like a concept like marriage, we have so many specific ideas about what marriage is to our time and place 
that would that doesn't map onto the ancient past, and yet we still insist on using the word marriage, right? Or say married people. Is there a way to kind of continue using language, right? That's from our time to talk about the past while still recognizing the differences. So, um, so there are some folks like David Halpern who would say you can't use the word sexuality when talking about ancient people because we have too many kind of post 1860s assumptions. We have sexual orientation on the gourd, right? We have this introspective individual kind of Western mm. kind of figure in mind where we're doing that. And while I'm sympathetic and like that's a teaching moment, you could do that as a strategy sometimes with folks. I also think it's a little bit disingenuous. Of course, the word sexuality means different things across space and, and time. Um, so how do we, we just become better at noticing and tracing that difference? And then sussing out, what do we do now that we know that there is that uh, temporal and spatial difference to how these words signify or how, these, how we enact these, these, these words, or perhaps maybe more importantly, how we enact practices that we use these words for. Um, so yeah, no, other people have pushed me since the book's written, like uh, you maybe are like pressing the word anachronism too much. There might... There might just be something about reading these things that entails kind of stacking time. Uh, and yes, as I alluded to, like the biblical doesn't stay in its place, right? No matter how much scholars would want to say, hey, I'm only telling you what the Ugaritic or what the Hebrew, what the Greek idiom means, and you can't be upset at me, and it doesn't have to mean anything for a time and place. It's just, well, it's just not true. The biblical is very much alive, even if tomorrow every person who reads the Bible were to stop and we were to stop reciting it in buildings or on Zooms or socially distanced outdoors kind of rituals, the biblical has been shaping, right? Or people have been using the biblical to shape, right? Um, practices and rituals and policies and our relationships for centuries. Um, and that's embedded whether you think you are very religious or you think you're done with religion mm -hmm. as my friends who have pockets say religion you know like religion is not done with you yet right uh keeping 101 that's megan and lise <laughs> uh, so even if you think yeah. you're over the biblical the biblical is still here and doing all kinds of things on us mm. or, or what people have done when they've done the scripturalizing work with these materials um so it's already kind of itself a weird queer interaction that we're doing. Uh, I'm just being more, I think I'm trying to just be very honest about that. I'm trying mm. to be, I'm trying to disclose that. Yeah. Um, and when I say anachronistic juxtaposition together is to really, again, highlight that I'm crossing this difference between identity and difference, mm. right? That I'm settling somewhere in between those two things and not claiming like a, a radical, like I'm not trying to kind of colonize the past and say they're just like us, and that tells us what to do. Um, but I'm also not pushing them away and saying that has nothing to do with our time and place, because it's not true. Mm -hmm. mm. Thank you for that. So yeah. so jumping into like, maybe one of the specifics, we've brought it up a couple of times of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11 and, and Paul's uh, chastening of women who are preaching and prophesying. So... Mm. You kind of begin, you, you, you employ Judith Butler a bit in reading this passage and write about Paul's argument. 
that it represents an effort to try to keep the women from repeating the men's practice of praying and prophesying, or rather that it aims to get them to repetitively pray and prophesy, but from within a regulatory frame that reinforces a gender difference. So Paul then is less, you know, less concerned that they're preaching and prophesying, but more that the way they are doing it is confusing gender and confusing gender roles within that community. Um, and so this then you kind of go, you make this argument that the argument about this actually begins a little earlier in Corinthians with that comment we've talked about, about women shaving their heads, women with very short hair. Uh, and that leads you to draw on this figure of androgyny in ancient Rome. And as you said before, you know, that, that figure is actually much more capacious and there's lots to be said about it. Um, and so through that engagement, you pose that, you know, in keeping with Paul's concern with confusion, this passage is not disputing whether females should pray or prophesy. It is pres- prescribing how females should be doing this activity. Um, now, there's a lot of detail in, in this argument and this section of the chapter, and, and I'm happy for you to comment on that. But I was also kind of thinking about moving to your connections with the more contemporary communities, where you suggest that the prophetic females of Corinth could broadly fit within the category of transgender. Perhaps they should be seen as examples, not of androgyny, but of female masculinity. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about asking about this move, you know, from the ancient figure of androgyny, this, this body that is present, you know, that is there, that is not only a figure evoked uh, in the minds of the listeners, but possibly, you know, uh, you know actually there hearing this and, and contributing to the dialogue, you know, from that figure through the more contemporary discussions of female masculinity and then kind of hooking around back to Paul to help provide um, by way of this alternative angle uh, and, you know, some ideas on the multiplicity of masculinity, the variation of gender, and importantly, how this then maybe undermines a kind of idea of a naturalised, timeless authority. You've just kind of laid out what chapter two does, right? <laughs> uh, and that, like, that kind of hook around, that's what, I, that's what I'm trying to kind of do each time as I, yeah. as I briefly narrate, like, okay, so he's talking about women's head to hair. Like, if you do this thing, if you pray or prophesy in the assembly with your head uncovered, it's just as bad as having your head shaved, right? And we often read this passage in my, my classes. I mean, this is a sweaty passage. Paul is working hard right? Like, <laughs> why is he working so hard? It's a little bit uh, unclear. And obviously mm. the history of interpretation of this text is a fraught one too, because it's enlisted in debates about who can and can't um, speak uh, in Christian assemblies to this day. Um, but I, I, w- I, was, I was struck by that, especially because many scholars, so like there's, if you don't know in the history of scholarship, like people can write on just one Greek word for multiple books, Right. So like kind of just a debate about how to translate the word head and what even head means. Like you could still call it head, but it means head in another way than you might think it might mean. Um, and so we've done that type of work or like what's going on with this phrase because of the angels. Uh, and yet we haven't talked more about like, well, wait a second. He seems to think that he's going to get the reaction he wants from folks by saying, hey, this is like having a head shaved. Am I right? Am I right? <laughs> you don't like it seems clear that he's trying to elicit a negative response by using that analogy. Um, And I was curious about that. I'm also like, to this day, I'm still confused. So I have friends who use the word androgyny now or say, oh, that person Mm -hmm. looks androgynous. 
Uh, and like to me, I, I tend to read it in terms of um, subcultural variations of gender that I know from different communities of which I'm a part or I'm in conversation with. And, you know, like people used to say, David Bowie is androgynous. Like, well, I don't even know what that means. And so, uh, and so I thought, oh, maybe I'll try to figure it out in the ancient setting. I'll just, because this is a word that shows up in both Latin forms and Greek forms. It's mm -hmm. kind of, and the andro and, and gyne together. And so you start following it around in the ancient world and it comes to connote all these different things, not only figures of mockery, although it, it does, and figures of anxiety. Um, and so I felt like, yes, we could, we, we've got, we've got Paul's argument situated here. Like he seems to be kind of referring to this anxiety about women being not in the place where they should be from a prevailing point of view. But then we're, then, okay, all I've done is situate Paul's argument. Right. And I think I even kind of say that one point chapter, like, okay, we could stop here. And again, if, if your goal is to try to better understand Paul's arguments, the book will give that to you. But I, I want to push beyond that because I care about these other people. And it still doesn't raise the question. It doesn't really answer the question. Well, why were the women praying and prophesying with their head uncovered? If it's so obvious that that would somehow be problematic, that it would be subject to this kind of mocking comparison. That seems like a kind of joke. Um, and so we have to start thinking about, well, what would the perspectives of people from below have been? All right. And so I began thinking with, that I was already aware of, uh, now Jack Halberstam's a book, Female Masculinity. There are ways in which uh, practice of masculinity don't just belong to male bodies or to male people, right? Um, so I've long been doing actually feminist work in biblical scholarship, and people assume because I'm, I was socialized male, I'm male identified for the most part, somewhat troubled, but still, that like, oh, you do ma masculinity studies. So I was like, oh, I don't know anything about this. All sorts of really great work. Colleen Conway's book, right? Behold the man is great. I don't know very much about masculinity. Really. Mm. I've only historically just interpersonally been interested in masculinity when my trans and when my, when my dyke or lesbian friends do masculine things, right. Or perform codes of masculinity that are familiar to me mm. or perform codes of masculinity that are not familiar to me. Right. Um, and that resonates with uh, how Connell, how Halberstam, and how kind of trans scholars in general, Susan Stryker's work, talks about kind of um, denaturalizing gender. So kind of building on, on Butler. But also there are ways in which masculinity can be a series of practices, right, that can be done in non-hegemonic ways, right? That uh, are forms of resistance from within potentially problematic dynamics. And that to me also sounded like it resonated with, well, maybe that's what's going on here, right? If, uh, if Paul is trying to characterize these women praying and prophesying as doing something problematic and trying very, very hard to kind of create like a bifurcation along gendered lines in the practices of praying and prophesying, right? So I point this out to my students in the old days, students used to have much greater variation in hair length in my classes uh, and much greater variation in what they're wearing. So like Paul's telling men not to cover their heads and also they shouldn't have long hair. Uh, I used to have a lot more long haired students who identify as men or who, right, who are just who are men, not identify as men. Uh, and many women, right, who had shorter hair. And Paul's gonna insist that this, this, this is, it's not natural to do that, right? The natural way is this, the natural way is that. 
and there's a bifurcation there. Um, and yet in the ancient world, they're very clear that there's ways in which women can be similar to men, especially the more elite a woman is, that maybe she could be like her really awesome father, right? From the kind of prevailing point of view. So they, they've got this anxiety about gender difference, gender, what might be considered disorder or confusion. Uh, and so it's not at all clear that everyone in the ancient world would have sorted these things in the same way. And so thinking about female masculinity and the capacious category of trans, right? And trans itself, of course, signifies in a wide variety of ways. There's much more to be said about how to do transgender biblical interpretation or how to do transgender work with historical materials from times and places besides our own. You shouldn't just take one white guy from America's point of view on it. This is not like the end all be all how to do a trans reading. This is one type of trans oriented reading, one type of reading that's informed by what's happening in transgender studies. Um, so to me, female masculinity helps me to suss out what the practices that the Corinthian women were doing better than the androgyny that Paul's trying to stick on them, right? Uh, in an attempt to say, what you're doing is androgynous, stop it. Right? <laughs> right? He wants them to stop yeah. doing it. Um, it doesn't tell us why they were doing it. It doesn't tell us what it looked like that they were doing it. Um, Paul has to write a whole nother letter, Second Corinthians. Uh, so my, my, my great teacher, Ann Wire, has written a commentary on that. I'm editing kind of a volume on her fabulous book, uh, The Corinthian Women Prophets. Um, and her and other people who are working on Second Corinthians say like, look, it's pretty clear that Paul did not win the day. Like his arguments did not convince enough people. Otherwise, why would he have taken the effort um, to write the second letter. It's not like firing off texts, friends, right? Uh, and it also seems like he has, he's taking different rhetorical approaches, different rhetorical strategies in Second Corinthians. Um, so if we're trying to kind of figure out what would that have looked like, what those practices would, I think female masculinity, right? Um, and kind of other trans forms of thinking about gender, right? Get us, get us a richer, potentially more complicated and not centered entirely around stigma and vilification, while recognizing that people might be negotiating vilification, stigmatization, marginalization, right? But how they negotiated in a way that wouldn't have just duplicated it, right? Uh, and so that's why the, I do these turns recurrently uh, in these chapters, so that we can maybe get a different kind of angle than what's being repeated and reinforced by Paul's letters redeployment of what I would consider to be very problematic, very troubling, but at the very least, the prevailing perspective of the curiarchal order of the time, which would, would have been Roman imperialism. Um, so that's that's what the chapters are trying to do. I guess it was a partial success because you narrated it really nicely before I <laughs> decided to kind of go on at greater length about it. No, that's great. It's very helpful. No, and, and it does. I think it, you know, we have we're obviously only now just focused on one chapter, but I think like, you know, the, the chapter on, um, Onesimus and, and Philemon and looking at, you know, how, you know, in BDSM communities and how that might help us think about coercion and, and slavery and, and and domination. And that, you know, is, is so helpful again in the way that it kind of really unpicks, you know, such a, such a tricky um, and, and complex passage, uh, you know, very short letter, but, but there's, you know, so much going on. Um, mm. And, you know, I think that it is, as you say, it is such a helpful even if it does delay, as you say, delays maybe what people are really there to get to, really a helpful way to 
establish something before you finally do, you know, you're coming to that in the last chapter, the, you know, the passages everyone's wanting to, to wrestle with. So I think that's, it's, it's, yes, it's truly a very rich and helpful and engaging book. So I do hope uh, a lot of people check it out. Uh, Appalling Bodies uh, out with uh, Queer Figures Before and After Paul's Letters out with Oxford University Press. Joseph, is there anything else you want to draw people's attention to or promote or uh, that, yeah, you're excited to Oh, my share? gosh. Uh, there's so much fabulous work happening in, in biblical scholarship right now, so do be paying attention. Um, I, I realized belatedly in this book that I'm also talking a lot about affect. Uh, I mean, we talk, the title of the book, my goodness, is called Appalling Bodies. So I'm clearly thinking about disgust and, and trauma. So I, I've been working on that um, quite a lot. Uh, but if you can get your libraries, if you have a lot of academic listeners, if you get your libraries to order this book, uh, so that way uh, Oxford University Press can release it in paperback and we can um, more easily assign it or give it to groups of folks. Yep. Um, but uh, I would encourage everyone to kind of keep reading eclectically uh, and to be curious, uh, to kind of take the time and space that you have to kind of try to reach for figures that you might think uh, were already marginalized or vilified. Uh, or missing from from your world because there's there's much much more uh, out there to be taken on. So um, so sure yes please check out my book uh, uh, at least order it uh, or make sure your library has the digital version of it um, and um, and and do and for the, the the kind of church readers and listeners here uh, let, let's do better than just working on inclusion, right? Mm, Chapter five is mm. kind of thinking about that. Like, is it, are, is it you that's inviting people in and what, what norms are at the heart of that? And we have to be careful about our, our appetites for sexual exceptionalism and for, mm. for moralizing. And, and maybe the lessons of the past as well as people who are right here with us right now is for thinking uh, more radically uh, about assembly uh, than we have been, so. I can money. say a lot more about that. But. Yeah, I know. I was <laughs> going to say, okay, let's just, let's fire it up a part two. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you for that. That that is such a wonderful uh, yes way to end. And then hopefully, Joseph will get you back on the podcast again because it's been a wonderful conversation. That I've sure. Had. Yeah, we could do part two sometime, or yeah, part three or four. Right? <laughs> uh, yes. No, but thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate it. All right, great. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, Love, Rinse, Repeat is part of the United Mission and Education family of the Uniting Church in Australia Synod of New South Wales ACT. Thankful for their support. Thank you for your listening. See you next week. Bye.